This is episode 28 of Ripe Good Scholar. Leers need to be loved. Fools are the first psychologists. <laughs> <laughs> I love that theory. I adore that. New theory. <laughs> That's just opened my eyes to a whole new, you know, whole new avenue with this. This is Sarah Clark with the Cincinnati Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to Ripe Good Scholar. Welcome to Ripe Good Scholar with Sarah Plaskett. Sarah believes that in order to fully understand the relevance of Shakespeare's works in the 21st century, you must examine the history those plays have travelled through since Shakespeare wrote them. Ripe Good Scholar is the show that dives into the archives, theatres and museums to explore the historical evolution of Shakespeare's plays. Join us in examining when and why they were written in the first place, as well as how they have been utilised around the world since then, so that you can see for yourself how the plays continue to be as relevant today as they were in the 16th century. And now, here's Sarah. Hello, and welcome to Ripe Good Scholar. There's a lot going on in King Lear. There are big emotions and tons of drama. It's what makes the play so compelling. However, it's more than just drama that draws us in. It's that human element that we immediately identify with in some capacity. Today, I'm going to talk with Dr. Lisa Grogan about Lear and why he is the way that he is. For this episode, we watched the Anthony Hopkins version of King Lear currently available on Amazon Prime. If you want to learn even more about King Lear and his thinking, head over to ripegoodscholar.com ep28. Now, let's head to Lear's Broken Kingdom. Today, we are doing a little bit of a different diagnosing, because it's a little less of a clear cut. This is what's wrong, such as with Brutus's wife, Portia. She was a special case. That is quite true. Um, we are going to be talking about none other than King Lear today, which... I think that a lot of people probably assume we're going to be talking about the aging and possible like dementia or Alzheimer's that he's starting to fall into. But for me, what I found more compelling is kind of his underlying issues of this pathological need to be loved and to have that love shown in weird ways. Yes, and shown in a very, a very certain way, like the way that he wanted it to be. Yeah, as I was thinking about it, I kind of broke it down into a few um, key things that I see from his desperate need to be loved. Of He requires demonstrations of love. Yes. He catastrophizes when those expectations aren't met. Yes. And he would rather destroy his own life than tolerate a perceived slight. Yes. Which he super does. <laughs> but we'll go back to the idea of how to show Lear love. Because the entire premise of the play is set up upon his who shall I say loves us most. And that person gets the biggest chunk of the kingdom, even though he's already divided up the kingdom at that point. So I'm like, you just assumed everybody was going to meet your expectations. Right. And your nonsense. It's a very, very straight line of, you know... Whoever's demonstration of love I like the best is going to get the, the biggest piece of the kingdom. 
Well, exactly. And we see it a couple other times throughout the play. We see it when Goneril's like, hey, maybe don't have these guys destroy my house. And he's like, how dare you not love me? Right. I'm going to go to your sister. And then when Regan's like, maybe Goneril has a point, he not only does he then turn on her, but before that, you see him kneel before her Mm -hmm. and beg her to take him in. Even though it was Lear in that instance kind of capitulating to his daughter, I think it also serves as a demonstration of his perception of what love is. Yes. And that is like physical demonstrations. Just as humans, we tend to express love in the way that we want to receive it. It's just how we do, you know, that we communicate with others the way that we prefer to be communicated with because that's the frame of reference that we have. That's true. I just thought of kind of the love languages. Yeah, type yeah, thing. that's what I was thinking. Of. I don't know what Lear's love language is. <laughs> Acts of service or words of affirmation. Yeah, he might be more into words. Yeah, I think he I think he might be words of affirmation now that I think on it. But I feel like he takes it to a degree of excess like he is like i don't just want to ask if i can stay with reagan i'm going to kneel before her and say how different she is from her sister yeah there's a very very dramatic flair to everything he does yeah and i feel like you know obviously it is a play so there's drama in it but if we're looking at lear as a person Mm -hmm. that need for dramatics i feel like I don't want to say it's like a mental health issue. I know I've seen it in people in my life. <laughs> it is it is something that, that we see and it can be a, a symptom of, of many different things. And my rule always is, you know, how is it working for you? And a lot of times, you know, these really big expressions of emotion either started, a lot of times they started in you know, a a pattern that used to work for someone and doesn't anymore. So maybe a family that there was a lot going on. And so you had to be very showy with your emotions in order to get the attention that you wanted because subtle signs were missed. They can also be an expression of people who feel very intense emotions and want to show that outwardly. They don't know how to like communicate that without being very dramatic. It's like, you know, I'm having this big feeling and I need to tell you about it. It's similar to how when young children are having big feelings, they have a tantrum about it and most people grow out of that. I was going to say, I've definitely had conversations with my toddler about big feelings. (laughs) Yes, and I'm sure he shows those feelings in a very big way at this point. (laughs) Absolutely. And this treads a little bit into the aging parent bit, but I think it's hard to talk about Lear without touching on that. But I think there are many ways Lear is very childlike. Yes. He has a very black and white perception of you either love me or you don't. That's it. When we look at that opening scene, you know, and Cordelia's like, I love you as I'm supposed to. Like, I'm going to also love my husband. Why are my sisters even married? (laughs) And he's like, how dare you, you monster. (laughs) He doesn't just see it as like, she doesn't love me as much or anything. Even that it's that she does not love me. Period. The end. If she doesn't love me all, she doesn't love me at all. 
Yeah, and that's that's also something that we see that's that's often a, a pattern that does get in people's way, and so we'll bring them into therapy. Is you know this this all or nothing, yes or no, kind of thing. And what's also striking with Lear is that he's looking for a certain feeling and he's wanting to get that from the people around him. And this is something that we run into with a lot of different things, which is why, you know, if someone has depression, it's like, oh, you have, you know, so much to be happy about. And it's like, I understand that, but I don't feel that. And that's the thing is that we're looking for that feeling. And so everyone telling us those things that may or may not be true, but we don't feel it. And that's what Lear is looking for. You know, he's looking for that feeling of being loved. And so I think that's why he's seeking these overly dramatic shows of affection, because in his mind, if someone shows him the right gesture, he will feel loved. And so he's seeking a feeling from external sources that is unattainable. You know, we, we can't get those feelings from external sources. So I think that's something that's also interesting, especially if we look at Lear through that lens of he is seeking a particular feeling and is looking for it in all the wrong places. You know, that that's a very common thread throughout all of his actions. I definitely see that, especially when you look at the clear favoritism he has toward Cordelia. Mm -hmm. And then when she doesn't meet his expectation of her, he starts thinking like, okay, well, Goneril and Regan are going to love me like I expected Cordelia to. And when they don't meet those expectations, because they are unrealistic, like if you question him at all, you don't love him. He does have that very black and white thought process, like you said. And part of that, it, it does have to do with a childlike way of thinking and so oftentimes when people display a very very black and white way of thinking there's often something that's happened in childhood for whatever reason you know emotional development was not able to happen in the way that would have led to a healthy emotional process as an adult and our brains really like for things to be simple we love it which is why stereotypes exist that is literally why when someone is expecting we say are you having a boy or a girl because then we can ascribe if you're having a boy these are the characteristics that i can ascribe to it if you're having a girl these are the characteristics i can ascribe to it and if the person says uh we don't want to find out until the baby is born you know that's something that our brains are hard it's hard to wrap around because there's uncertainty there and so our brains like for things to be easy. And as we become adults, if we have a healthy emotional development, we're better able to handle nuance. We're better able to wrap our brains around it. We still like for things to be simple. You know, if you've ever asked someone a question, they give you this like five minute long explanation. You're like, yes or no. <laughs> but I think that's something that when we see that very black and white thinking in adulthood, a lot of times it's because there was something that happened in childhood that you know, interrupted that process. That behavior also may have been modeled. We do see, you know, a lot of patterns that pass through families and it's not even that there's a genetic component, but if you grow up as a child with a parent who, or two parents who are fighting all the time and, you know, oh, you didn't do the dishes, so you must not care about me, that's going to be modeled for you. You're going to replicate that. And what I think is interesting with that is one, Goneril and Regan are talking about how he's getting worse in his old age. And I, I believe it's Regan who says he hardly knew himself before. That kind of gives that hint of this is kind of how he always was. But I think also with that of kind of it being bottled, we forget sometimes that 
you know, even though he's King Lear, like, he was a king. His whole life, he was treated as royalty. Where people did what he said and thanked him profusely and kissed his butt. Right. Well, and I think also with King Lear, we have to be aware that, you know, he was a king, like you said that. And particularly in an age where royalty was considered, you know, chosen by the divine and, you know, that kind of thing that we cannot discount the sense of entitlement that that would have bestowed. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> there is that combination of, you know, the, the sense of entitlement that that role would have brought combined with as a parent, you know, a lot of times there's a sense that your child will love you unconditionally and that that's difficult for, you know, parents to wrap their head around that a child might not for some reason. Plus, if everyone was catering to him, there may have been this kind of in the back of his head, do they like me or do they like the fact that I'm the king? And so I think when you combine all of that together, he's looking for this unconditional love from his children that, like you said, is, is unrealistic. And it almost makes me think, I wonder if Cordelia was the favorite because she wasn't married yet. If he's got this very black and white thinking, you know, they can either love me at all, all or none. And if they're married, then it must be none. And so I wonder if that's why he gets so rageful when, because Cordelia is kind of his last hope. That's interesting. When you mentioned that, you know, he's looking for his children to love unconditionally. One of the things I had noted was that his love is not unconditional. Not at all. His love is extremely conditional. He's constantly being like, but look at all I did for you. And if you aren't appropriately grateful for all that I've done for you, which I, I wrote this blog post after I first read King Lear because I expected to be like, Goneril and Regan are absolute monsters. And I'm like, Regan is kind of terrible. I mean, she does kind of pluck somebody's eyeballs out. You know, just a little bit. A little bit. A little bit of eye plucking. Yeah, just, you know, he hasn't done a little bit he of eye plucking. hasn't done a little bit of eye But I was like, I am, ha I'm like, I'm going to get a t-shirt made, hashtag team Goneril. <laughs> yes. She had points. <laughs> she also did some did some not so great things, but she had some points. He is in her house and he basically has been like, here, you take all this responsibility. Also, you need to house me and my hundred friends. And we're just going to do it. And we their want. servants. And I get to do what I want and you don't get a say in your own house. And if you even are like, hey, maybe say something, tell your tell your bros to turn it down. He's like, how dare you? Right. You must not love me. Yeah. Well, and I think there there is a very transactional nature, you know, to his love. And that also is something that we see in people who are either, like I said, looking for, you know, they're looking for an internal feeling from external sources or this emotional immaturity kind of thing. That's not to discount like acts of service as a love language, but this kind of, you know, that I earn your love by actions. And so if I perform actions, then I am therefore entitled to your love. So in his mind, it's this, you know, well, if it weren't for me, you wouldn't even be here. So therefore you must love me, you know, and, and do all of these things. And like you said, that he, he can't tolerate any pushback against that. Well, you know, when you talked about love being transactional, it made me kind of think back to the fact that he is a king. A lot of the affection he would have received would have been transactional and that he 
gave would have been transactional. That's true. And also, I think Lear wasn't a king by conquering. He was a king by birth, correct? As far as we know. Uh, I believe so. I haven't read the whole... Because like, it's actually based on an actual historical, quote-unquote, historical king. But I believe so. Yeah, so assuming that he was a, a king by birth, that would have been something from the very get-go. He would have been groomed to be a king from a young age. And that there may not have even been anyone in his life that's like, I just like you for you. You're right that that probably was the nature of emotion that was modeled for him. It's also possible that he had a lot of people, you know, it's like, oh, I, you know, gave you a title. And so they would bow and scrape. And, mm -hmm. you know, that was what was expected. And so when he didn't get that from his daughters, that was just not okay. Well, and I think you see that with the Earl of Gloucester, who even amidst all the chaos is still like, but he's the king. What I found interesting is because on the one hand, when you hear about kind of the transactional nature of how he perceives love, there's also this extreme emotional attachment to it in that you see in the way if someone doesn't meet his expect his unrealistic expectations, he catastrophizes. And you see that with Cordelia and Goneril especially. You know, at the start, Cordelia says, I love you like I should. I can't heave my heart into my throat. I love you. He should know that. Mm -hmm. But particularly when we see the, you know, the catastrophizing, something that we see in people is self-sabotage. And one of the ways that that can come out is I'm going to reject you because before you can reject me because that's going to hurt less. He does a very similar thing within the same scene to Kent. Kent tells Lear as he's chastising Cordelia like you're being ridiculous and Lear actually fully exiles him he's like you have 10 days get out GTFO pack up your stuff and go so I think that is also in that same scene a very good reflection of you're not on my side go What's interesting is we would almost expect that someone would be more willing to cut someone out who's not as close to them as opposed to someone who's closer. It's interesting he does it with the daughters first, you know, because then it seems less unexpected that he does it with Kent. If he's willing to cut Cordelia out, who had been his favorite, the fact that he's willing to exile Kent is not really a surprise. It's just, it's interesting in that Obviously, it's intentional. Everything in Lear is, you know, everything in any Shakespeare play is intentional. It was intentionally written that way. So this is setting up a pattern. This is showing that he's willing to do this with his daughters. He's willing to do this with his courtiers that he is close to. Like I will say that Kent, while just a courtier, is also one of his favorites. In, in that dialogue between the two, you hear Kent saying, you know like he starts it with you know i have dutifully served you for many years and even after lear exiles him kent just takes Hangs on out. a disguise and like comes back in to me it always seemed that the kent lear relationship was two ways right well and it, it's interesting because the interactions with kent it that very much mirrors what we see in the family and loved ones of someone who has a significant mental illness or, you know, just significant challenging behavior going on um, is that that kind of trying to argue of, you know, that I've been there for you. 
you know, and if, if you kind of think of putting yourself in the, the shoes of, you know, someone who's close to you, who's trying to cut you out and saying, I've been there for you. Like, what are you doing? You know that I've been there for you. And then, you know, he, he gets exiled. And like you said, you know, he, he comes back. And so there's obviously some kind of, you know, personal connection because obviously if Kent was only in it for, you know, what Lear could give him as the king, he'd be like, well, you know what? Forget you too. Bye. Particularly because Cordelia is now the queen of uh, France. Right. Like, why wouldn't he just go to France? Why wouldn't he go anywhere else? Hey, I took your side. Could you give me some money, though? Right. Could I maybe stay with you? Like, crash on your couch for a week? Um, so there's obviously a loyalty and a dedication to Lear. And there's, there's almost a sense that he can't understand that Lear is not stable that Lear is not able to look out for his own best interests and so it's kind of like I'm going to come in here and kind of sneaky like do this well and I think what's interesting about that perspective is you almost get this idea that while this is probably the most extreme Lear has been it's maybe not the first time Kent's kind of come in and been like hold on because if you're someone that is not in a position to do that to a king like that's a lot that's a lot to stand up to a king and be like you're wrong what you're doing right now is wrong that could literally be a fatal mistake yes exactly and so for kent to stand up and do that and say you're wrong and then be surprised that lear exiled him and cut him out i would believe that kent this is not the first time kent has told lear he was wrong I would, I would agree. The best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. So if we see a behavior happen, chances are it's happened before. So that includes, you know, that there is a high chance that Lear has had a bigger reaction than a situation warranted. Maybe not as extreme as, but has had a bigger reaction. And it's very possible that Kent would have been able to rein him in in the past. This is why we talk about picking your battles. Part of it is because if you are the type of person who doesn't stand up to someone very often when you do, that tends to get listened to more. So if Kent was good at that, he could pick his battles. I absolutely see that. Like within the text, there's a couple moments that like as you were speaking, I thought of one, the fact that Kent is surprised when Lear is like, get out. Not only that, but Following this whole debacle, Reagan, there's one specific line that has always stuck with me as we've come into this discussion, which we've probably discussed before, of Reagan saying he hardly knew himself before, but it's worse now. One of my working theories is, you know, that he could have been diagnosed with some type of personality disorder. And we can we can talk, you know, a little bit more about that in a bit, but in general, we tend to see personality disorder settling down as people age. They tend to be the most flamboyant and spectacular when people are in their teens to like mid 30s. You know, that's that's usually and then late 30s into their 40s, people tend to settle out. And that's not what it seems like we see with Lear. We, it seems like we see an escalation of behavior, which kind of points in a, a different direction. Either the behavior has been reinforced and therefore is strengthening, or on the opposite side, that has not gotten him what he wanted. And so he's escalating. Obviously, without having, you know, a really well laid out behavioral history yeah. of Lear, I can't tell. 
and we may do an episode on this at some point that Lear has some sort of mental deterioration mm-hmm. but I find it interesting that then these traits would be like a little less like well he hardly knew himself I'm not an expert in dementia itself that's a whole ball of wax to its own but it can in many cases and often does lead to a reduced impulse control Mm. and compare that with at least I know for myself the older I've gotten the less I care what others think of me (laughs) I mean that's accurate (laughs) you know and I if that's how it is when I'm in my 30s I can only imagine what's gonna be like in my 80s (laughs) look out world and I mean this was like (laughs) and so you know especially if if there was something that was you know, a deterioration that was lessening his impulse control, coupled with what we've already mentioned as far as him being catered to his whole life and getting what he wanted, then if there aren't any consequences for his behavior, why wouldn't he up the ante? You know, if that works for us, then we're going to start there and up the ante. And it definitely sounds like that was very prevalent with Lear. If we couple that with a deterioration that impacts impulse control it would make sense there's some other things with the dementia theory also is that sometimes when people experience dementia they can get very paranoid if there was some paranoia setting in coupled with really honestly just a fear of dying that can make people frantic and he's thrown tantrums to get what he wants his whole life one of the best instances in the play that people call to for Lear's mental deterioration is the fact that he runs out into the storm. Right. So to me, at least from my very minimal knowledge between what I've read on Lear and you, is that, you know, you saw him rejecting Goneril, gets on his knees and begs Regan, and then his sisters escalate because they're like, why do you even need one man? And Lear runs out into the storm even beyond that like there's one point where i think kent or the fool are like here's a house here's a little shelter let's just go stay here there and Lear's like no thank you (laughs) i need to suffer i think there's a lot with that i think one is obviously we can't discount like the dramatic impact of running off into a storm naked like it'd be good tv now it was good tv then (laughs) (laughs) accurate (laughs) But for some people, for a variety of reasons, even the idea of taking help or suggestion from anyone is unacceptable. It is an unacceptable admission of weakness. Even the suggestion of, hey, there's a doghouse over there. Maybe let's get your naked butt out of the storm in it. (laughs) And some of it is almost a loss of power. The more I'm talking, the more I'm, I'm really kind of grasping onto this idea of a lot of Lear's behavior is down to his fear of death. Because... He feels very out of control, and when we feel that we don't have control over our lives, we tend to exert it in other areas. For Lear, it seems that, you know, there's so much he can't control, but he can control telling the fool, no, I'm not going in that little shack. So what I find interesting about that, though, that kind of theory, is that Lear willingly gives away control. He basically says to his daughters, I want all the respect and all the fun of a king. But I want you to take over all the decision-making, the power. He gave that away. And then he's, like, mad about it. Yes. I'm like, but you gave it away, though. (laughs) Welcome to my job. I think there's a couple things that could explain that. One, I think that 
there can definitely be this kind of like buyer's remorse that happens when we make a big decision. Mm -hmm. It could be very possible that, you know, if we're going off the theory that Lear had been raised to be a king, that he's always had a pretty high level of responsibility on his shoulders. And so he's like, you know, I mean, it's very possible he never really even got to be like a child or a teenager, have that carefreeness. And so he's like, I want that. And so this is how I'm going to get it. And then after the fact realizes, oh, I've made a terrible mistake. In that sense, the running off into the storm could have almost been atonement of, you know, that where you were saying, like, I need to suffer, you know, is like, I have screwed up so terribly that I need to suffer and I need to suffer in this very dramatic. I can definitely see that because shortly before he runs off into the storm, after he leaves Goneril's, but before he sees Reagan, he says something to the effect of i regret what i did to her and i because re i remember watching it with you and in the, in the version we watched with anthony hopkins it almost read as goneril but i remember when i first read and watched kind of one of the longer productions of lear because i think film productions cut down a lot it was clear he was talking about Cordelia because that is somewhat, that is a decision he expresses regret over throughout the play. So I find that interesting kind of the buyer's remorse aspect because with Goneril, the first time he encounters a moment of, but you're not in charge here. He essentially goes, excuse me, what? <laughs> yes, I am. You know, and then it gets interesting because then the fool's going like, well, you made your daughters your mother. Essentially, you made your daughters in charge of you. And now you're mad they're in charge of you. Fools are the first psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> I love that theory. I adore that. New theory. <laughs> That's just opened my eyes to a whole new, you know, whole new avenue with this is, the function of the fool is to, you know, kind of speak the truth. Absolutely. I love that idea of, you know, kind of seeing, you know, fools as the first psychologist, you know, because in many ways, you know, our our role, especially as, as therapists and even, you know, as assessors and, you know, diagnosticians is to look at the information in front of us and speak the truth about it. Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to go to ripegoodscholar.com EP28 for even more information on King Lear. The show notes for every episode are filled with additional resources and facts that can help you further explore this topic. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review. It helps others find our podcast so our community of scholars can grow. Also, make sure you're on our mailing list to receive a free digital download and be kept up to date on everything going on over at Ripe Good Scholar. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ripe Good Scholar to keep the Shakespeare fun going all day, every day. That's all for now. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. As always, the deepest dives and best discussions are happening after the show at ripegoodscholar.com. Join us over there to lend your perspective and engage with fellow scholars. We would love to hear from you. That's all for today. And remember, our courts shall be a little academe, still and contemplative in living art. <laughs>